I'm Jonathan Mosen and this is Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. Coming up on the show today, your thoughts on what Apple unveiled at WWDC. iOS 15 will try to keep you focused and when they want to take your kids away just because you're blind. Mosen at Large Podcast. Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference has now concluded, and there's quite a bit more to say since we produced the recap right after the keynote. Apple has announced the winners of its design awards for 2021. These are prestigious. They are highly sought after by developers, because if you win one of these awards, you get a lot of attention. So let's go through three that I picked out that I think are worthy of note. Warm congratulations to Voice Dream Reader. This is one of those essential apps for blind iPhone users. Winston Chen, its developer, has done such a good job with this app, developing it consistently over time with many of the new features implemented as a result of user feedback. Voice Dream Reader is incredibly powerful, and I love using it to compile a daily newspaper of articles from my RSS feeds, which I listen to by adding them to Instapaper and then reading them in Voice Dream. Carrot Weather is also a category winner, this time in the Interaction category. Carrot Weather is one of the best weather apps there is. It's available for your iPhone, Mac, Apple Watch, and even Apple TV. It presents detailed weather information from multiple sources with a good dollop of snark thrown in, and accessibility is very good. Great app. And finally, Be My Eyes is a winner in the social impact category, and this is epic news. I remember seeing Hans, the blind guy who came up with the idea of Be My Eyes, consulting with a bunch of blind people on an iPhone-related email list about his idea. He got a lot of negative feedback about it. Basically, people said, don't bother. Yet his app has made a huge difference to many blind people. It just goes to show, when you believe in something enough, You have to trust your instincts, go with your gut, follow your dream, and get it done. Well done to Hans and the Be My Eyes team, and keep up the great work. Depending on your perspective, the bold, the brave, or the stupid, have installed iOS 15 Developer Beta 1, which was released right after the keynote. In fact, even before we concluded our keynote recap, we had blind people getting in touch saying that they had installed it. Not massive changes for voiceover this year, and as many people have said, I'm relaxed about that as long as bugs are fixed. Sadly, some of the irritants that I have been hoping to see fixed have not been yet, but we are at the beginning of the cycle. In particular, it is still echoing the word space, even when your keyboard echo is not set to character, every time you flick right in Braille screen input to enter a space. That one really does slow you down, hearing the word space every time you enter a new word. There are no changes at this stage in the way that the Mantis is performing with a very limited number of keyboard commands available, and I understand that Braille is no better on Perkins-style keyboards as well. All will become clearer over time, of course, but I'd like to show you one particular feature today that isn't necessarily accessibility-related, but it has come up on this podcast as being on people's wish list. This one looks fairly feature-complete, And my thanks and congratulations to Apple for doing this. This relates to the focus system that they talked about in the WWDC keynote. 
I've been using iOS 15 for only a few days and already it has improved the way that I work and the way that I deal with notifications. So let's take a look at how this works. I'm going to ask Siri to open settings and this gives me an opportunity to mention that when you have Siri on your device, it's really fast for on-device related tasks. That said, in New Zealand, we are not supposed to have this feature. If you set your language to English New Zealand as your input language for Siri, in other words, the kind of voice that Siri wants to recognize, you will be out of luck. So for my New Zealand friends, you have a number of choices. You can switch your language to English Australia, English US or English UK and see how Siri gets on recognizing you. I guess I'm fairly lucky that my voice is relatively neutral. It doesn't have a hugely strong New Zealand accent. And I found just switching it to English US really doesn't seem to have impeded the recognition of what I'm saying at all. So dig how fast this works. Open settings. Settings. Dude, fast, isn't it? And I haven't gotten used to it yet. I'm sure I will get used to it. But every time this happens, I think, wow, this is such a big improvement. Then you can flick through your settings or you can just tap on the screen if you know where it is to find focus button. And this is the interface to set up the focus system. If you weren't following along with the WWDC keynote and its related coverage, you may not be clear about what the focus system does. But as we explore this, it will become clear. So I'll double tap. Do not disturb button. I'm in do not disturb at the moment, which is just one of several focus options that you can set up because I'm recording and I don't want to be disturbed by notifications. With previous versions of iOS, you could either be in do not disturb mode or not. You could go into notifications and decide which notifications were sent to you, but it was all a bit convoluted. I had my do not disturb set up so that calls from my favorites would go through to me even when I was in do not disturb. And in my phone favorites, I would have family members and people that really did need to get hold of me. The trouble with that is that there are times when you genuinely just can't be disturbed at all. For example, I might be in a meeting and one of my kids might just be calling me to ask something that isn't urgent, but they don't know that and so they call and the phone goes off. It's not a big deal, obviously. I would put my phone into silent mode whenever I was in such a meeting. But at times, you just don't want to be bothered at all. And of course, if you did get a call from somebody when you were reading something from your Braille display say notes for a presentation or something like that, then the focus would be taken away and it would all be a bit of a drama, even if your phone was set to silent. So now when I put my phone in do not disturb, it genuinely means I can't be disturbed by anyone. This is my highest level of unavailability without turning the phone completely off. It means that I have all my phone functions, but no notifications and no calls are going to get through to me now in do not disturb. If I flick right, We'll have a look at other focus options. Sleep button. When I'm asleep, if my kids are calling me in the middle of the night or other family members, then something seriously is wrong. So I do want to be disturbed by them when I am in sleep mode. And so I've configured my sleep options this way. Let's have a look at what's here. I'll double tap. Allow notifications heading. The first thing you need to decide is what notifications are allowed through when you're in this mode. I'll flick to the right. People button. If you double tap this option, you'll be in your contacts list and you will be able to determine which people are allowed, if any, 
to break through your focus and get through to you. And this appears to apply to calls and text messages. If you have contact groups set up, you can also specify a contact group. I'll flick right. Apps button. Similarly, which apps are allowed to break through your particular focus that you're setting up here? If I double tap. People button. One of two. Selected apps button. Two of two. You're taken to the same screen, actually, whether you choose people or apps, and there are two views, and the apps view is now selected. So when I flick right... Apps in the allowed list can send you notifications during sleep. Allowed apps. Remove all. Zero. Button. Add app. Button. I'll double tap the add app button. Apps. Heading. And flick right. Done. Button. Search. Search field. Hash symbol. Button. Cap A. Button. Cap B button. And we've got this index of apps here. If I navigate by heading. Hash symbol heading. We're in the number sign heading and I'll flick right. One news. That's a news app from New Zealand. If I were to double tap this, then it would be allowed to send me notifications through this focus. But I don't want any apps sending me notifications when I'm asleep. To get out of here, we tap the done button, which I'll do now. Sleep back button. I will indeed activate the back button with a two-finger scrub. And the next thing that you can determine is whether you have time-sensitive notifications coming through in this focus. Time-sensitive notifications. Switch button. Off. I don't believe that you as the user can define what a time-sensitive notification is, but developers, I think, will be able to. You do have some control, though. When a time-sensitive notification comes through from an app for the first time, you're asked if you want to keep receiving them as time-sensitive notifications. For example, I use the calendar extensively, and I also use the reminders app extensively. The first time I received notifications from those apps in iOS 15, I was asked if I want to keep receiving them as time-sensitive notifications, and I said yes. And now that means that if I turn this feature on in one of my focus modes, then I will receive those notifications even when that focus mode is on. So if you want to sit down and do some serious writing or perhaps you're reading a book and you don't want to be bothered by breaking news notifications and clubhouse and social media of all kinds, but you do want time-sensitive notifications, turn this on. You'll be bothered far less, but you won't be completely excluded from things that might require your immediate attention. Now, when you're in sleep mode, you want to sleep, so that's why, by default, the time-sensitive notifications are off. And indeed, the operating system provides a wee explanation of this feature. Allow people and apps to notify you immediately, even when you have focus turned on. I'll flick right. Share focus status. Switch button. On. What does this do? Well, let's ask the operating system by flicking right again. When this is on, tell apps you have notifications silenced and allow people to notify you anyway if something is important. Now, you may choose to switch this off when you're sleeping. You just don't want to be bothered. But if you have family members who are dependent on you for some reason, or you really are in a mission-critical kind of role where somebody might need to wake you up for a really good reason, you might want to leave this on. Customization heading. And now we're in the customization section. Home screen button. Let's have a look at what this does. I'll double tap. Home sleep back button. And flick right. Home screen heading. Custom pages, switch button, off. What does this do? Well, it tells us here too. Choose specific home screen pages to show when the focus is turned on. 
This could potentially make you rethink the way that you organize your apps. If you're a neat freak like me and you have many, many hundreds of apps, as I do, you may well have got all your apps organized into lovely folders. Sometimes people look at my home screen and they say, wow, you've got such an orderly iPhone screen. And to be honest, it doesn't really matter so much anymore because of Braille screen input, which I use a lot of the time to launch apps. And of course, now that Siri is so much more reliable for these sorts of functions on device, Siri is a bit more viable than it used to be. And now you can set up individual home screens that might pertain to a particular focus. This is really designed to stop you from being distracted. Let's say, for example, that you set up a page on your home screen that has all of your work-related apps. So right now I have a folder called Productivity, and that served me well under the old system. But if I want, I could move those productivity apps, which are usually work-related, onto a page called Work. If I set my focus to Work, I could do things like get rid of all of the social media notifications that aren't of interest to me, perhaps have one or two breaking news apps come through that allow me to stay in touch with really important things that are developing, and only have the page for my work-related apps visible. So... Like the feature says, it really allows you to focus. The reverse is also true, though. In this era of push notifications and always-on devices, it can sometimes be difficult to let go and recharge, and that is so important for all of us. So you can set up a home focus when none of your work apps are visible. You can stop notifications from Teams or Slack or whatever tool your workplace uses. You can make those work-related apps disappear entirely while you're in your home focus. We'll go back. Allowed notifications heading. And the next option on the screen is. Options button. I'll double tap it. Notifications heading. And flick right. Delay delivery switch button on. What does this do? Notifications you receive that are not in your allowed list will be delivered directly to notification center until the focus is turned off. So this just makes it a bit less tempting to look at things that you may not want to look at. Hide notification badges. Switch button off. You know how you flick through your home screen and you see, for example, Castro, 89 new items if you subscribe to a lot of podcasts. If that kind of a badge that shows you that you've got a number of unread messages in Slack or Teams or any of those applications or Facebook posts, if they are going to distract you, when you're not receiving notifications from those apps, but you can see the badge on the home screen and know there is stuff in there that might tempt you, then you can turn this feature on so you won't see the badges. Those are the only options available at the moment, so we'll go back. Time-sensitive notifications. Switch button. Off. We've reached the next heading on the screen. Schedule and health. Heading. And these options seem to be specific to the sleep focus because they relate to things like bedtime and your wake-up alarm. But if you're configuring a focus that is not sleep-related, there are options pertaining to when this focus triggers. And it could be at a particular time of day. It may be based on your location or a number of other criteria. It's very flexible. I'm going to go back to the previous screen, which will take us back to our list of focuses. Sleep button. I tried to avoid saying focuses because I think the plural is actually foci, but it sounds ridiculous saying that. Flick right. Personal setup button. We have the personal option, which I have not set up at this point. Work setup button. Similarly, the work option. 
Focus silences alerts and notifications. Share across devices on. This is really cool. If you have another device in Apple land, you will be able to share these focuses on your other devices. When a focus is on, it will be turned on across all devices. Focus status button. If you double tap this button, you will see all of the apps that can access your focus status. And when I go in there at the moment, at this early stage of the cycle, Messages is the only app that can see my focus status. So if somebody else is using iOS 15 and they message me when I'm in my sleep mode, it will let them know. If we flick right, phone calls button. And this is the same user interface that was present in the old do not disturb options. You can choose to let all phone calls through. You can have phone calls only from favorites or no phone calls at all. And I have chosen the no phone calls at all option because I can let specific contacts call me through the other settings that we've looked at. And you can create your own focus settings from scratch. So if you want to create one, for example, that relates to reading books and you want to be very clear about the only people who can bother you, the only apps that can interrupt you, you can do this now. This is a feature that I think many of us can really use. It adds a lot of value to the device and well done to Apple for its implementation. So that is a look at iOS 15's focus options. And now, of course, we can do this really quickly. Turn off. Do not disturb. Okay. Do not disturb is now off. James Muirhead is writing in and says, Good morning, Jonathan, this time from a much sunnier and warmer London. Having listened to a couple of your podcasts, I know that you are quite excited about the prospect of a glucose monitor appearing in the new version of Apple Watch. While this may be of some value, it is important to know that blood glucose, though important, is completely outranked by blood insulin. Strong evidence is appearing which links high insulin, hypoglycemia, and insulin resistance to many chronic metabolic diseases. It is quite likely that a, quote, normal glucose level, unquote, is being maintained by a madly over-revving pancreas, which is striving to keep glucose acceptably low. For example, if a routine visit to your doctor shows that your blood pressure is high, then it is likely that you will be prescribed pills from one of four groups, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, or diuretics. Your doctor has no idea which of those will work, and if, on follow-up, your BP is still high, then she will probably add in pills from another group. She may have tested your hemoglobin, A13C, or glucose, and they are within normal limits. However, there are five possible reasons why high insulin can be the root cause of the raised blood pressure. Your doctor will have no idea of your insulin level as insulin measuring is not part of the standard blood panel examination. I know that you are always keen to learn, Jonathan, and I strongly recommend reading Why We Get Sick by Professor Ben Bickman. That's spelled B-I-K-M-A-N. This is a book aimed at the public and it systematically links raised insulin levels to many of the chronic conditions which beset people eating a Western diet. Western diet means consuming a large amount of processed food. An even harder-hitting book is Metabolical by Professor Robert H. Lustig, spelled L-U-S-T-I-G. Again, this is aimed at the public, 
but should be compulsory for all in the medical profession. He swings some mighty punches at his own profession, at food manufacturers and the pharmaceutical industry. Dr. Richard Knob, that's K-N-O-B-B-E, an ophthalmologist from the United States, does a very persuasive 45-minute YouTube video on the iniquities of vegetables-slash-seed oils with particular relevance to age-related macular degeneration. His points are well-argued and strongly suggest that the condition is neither age-related nor genetic. Yes, I know that 20% of the above information will be shown to be faulty in 5 to 10 years, but that still leaves a great deal to ponder in the meantime. I have no wish to denigrate doctors, but it should be remembered that they receive the merest tangible brush with the study of nutrition in their lengthy training. We, the public, are going to have to expect far higher standards of knowledge of food science and nutrition, as the pushier we get, the more our general practitioners are going to have to learn. Regrettably, being referred to dietitians is not the answer either as you will appreciate from reading these books. Thank you for all your hard work and your very clear podcasts, concludes James. Thank you, James. Not sure how long you've been listening to the show, but I'm right on board with you. In fact, I have already read Metabolical, and I've read authors like Gary Torbs and Mark Hyman and have talked about them on the special program that we did on low-carb slash ketogenic eating. It absolutely astounds me that as we've increasingly consumed processed food and low-fat foods, the world has become sicker, and yet certain elements of the medical profession double down and essentially blame the patients when the advice the patients are being given is faulty and the food we are being marketed is damaging. It's a really unfortunate situation we find ourselves in, and a lot of it is perpetuated by very big companies with very big pockets to market their wares and also to advocate to government for no change despite the emerging science. So yes, Metabolical is good. I will read the other book that you mentioned as well. Mark Hyman, spelt H-Y-M-A-N, who has had a bit of a road to Damascus experience over all of this, he realized that the advice he was giving to his patients wasn't working. They were getting sicker and he got into this area of what he calls functional medicine where he believes that food is medicine, and if it's not medicine, it's poison. And I think that's a great way to view things. Whenever I think about putting something in my mouth, I ask myself that question, is it medicine or is it poison? And it's amazing how easy it is then to just not eat something if you know that you're poisoning your system with sugary foods. Anyway, he has a new book out as well, which I have not read yet, called The Pegan Diet, P-E-G-A-N. So it'll be interesting to catch up with that book at some stage. But regarding your point about the Apple Watch and WWDC, I think the reality is that we are not going to convince people who are willing to take the conventional medical advice out there that they should investigate this way of living, despite the fact that there are Increasing credible reports of people whose diabetes have been completely eliminated by going ketogenic. I mean, it's a remarkable thing, but people just aren't willing to go there. And I suppose you have to meet people where they are while also advocating for further substantive changes. So if somebody is needing to measure their glucose level, I think it will be a really big accessibility win 
if a glucometer comes to the Apple Watch. So I guess I'm being a bit pragmatic about that. Christopher Wright says the only things that stand out to me from WWDC were the FaceTime features and SharePlay. It's great we can finally disable echo cancellation and noise suppression during calls, which should make them sound more significantly better. I also like the ability to share links. This should open the platform up to potentially anything running a Chromium browser. SharePlay is also very interesting. It sounds like it will send the audio in its original quality to everyone in the call, which is better than Zoom's implementation, which I've found highly irritating because it uses noise suppression aggressively and there's no way to disable it even if you enable original sound. Hopefully it will be in stereo as well. I'm curious to try this with apps like Voice Dream Reader if the developer chooses to add the feature. The only feature that seems to be limited to devices with the A12 processor is the spatial audio for voices, which I don't really care about when talking to people. I'm also interested in the other intelligence features, such as the ability to extract pieces of information from images, but I'll have to wait until I get new hardware for that as well. I would have sprung for the 2020 iPhone SE, but since my 6S is still supported, I'll hold off until the SE is refreshed. I think it's excellent value for the money, and the omission of the UWB chip doesn't really bother me. As always, voiceover features are of particular interest, but we'll have to wait since Apple doesn't talk about those in great detail. I'm glad iOS 15 hasn't dropped support for older devices. My 6S will serve me well for another year. Sadly, my 2013 MacBook Air is no longer supported, and I have no plans to get a new model. Hopefully, it'll continue to run Windows 10 like a champ for many years to come. I'm curious what Apple has done in Monterey for voiceover users, although I'm not holding my breath. Apple's track record with voiceover on the Mac has been horrible. And it's a shame, especially with these new M1 Macs, which sound awesome from a technical standpoint. I'm disappointed that macOS seems to be the only thing that can run natively on them right now, which means you're stuck if you get one of them and realize you can't deal with voiceover's shortcomings. The Intel Macs rock. If it weren't for the ability to run Windows, I would have gotten rid of mine a couple of years ago, which would have been very sad. Hi, Jonathan, writes Darren McDougall. Thanks for the great rundown of the WWDC keynote the other day. I'm quite excited about iOS 15 and will be testing the public beta on secondary devices when it comes out. I've read that iOS 15 restores some iteration of the iOS 13 time and date picker wheels, which alone makes the upgrade worth it. I've also read word of some sort of drag-and-drop feature for copying and pasting photos or text from one app to another, so it will be interesting to see how voiceover works with that. From what I heard on your podcast about the new way of multitasking on iPad, it seems like it may be something I'm a little more likely to use. I learned how to multitask with voiceover in iPad OS 13, but honestly have forgotten since I never found the feature overly convenient. I'm also eager to test out the changes to the weather app and the offline Siri. In a final thought, it sometimes happens that I'm carrying my work iPhone with me after hours, and so the new focus setting will make sure Teams notifications and work emails don't show up in the evening.
I look forward to giving all of this a try. Thanks, Darren. Here's one more question I will come back to in just a moment. But just to say, I also hope that this will encourage more workplaces to allow people to use their own devices with eSIMs. If you can have your home phone number on a physical SIM and your work phone number on an eSIM or vice versa, then you can have everything on one device and just have the apps that are appropriate to the task that you're doing come up based on focus. This is much better than carrying a second device that you have to charge and potentially could lose. And a question, says Darren, do we know when or if Apple Music Lossless will come to Sonos? Thanks for the great podcast. Darren, at the time of recording, I have not been able to find a definitive answer to this question, and I've been looking for it since Apple Music made the lossless announcement. But what you can do, which is quite impressive, is if you have a Sonos Arc soundbar, the one that supports Dolby Atmos, and if you have an Apple TV, and if that Apple TV is connected to a TV that is capable of the Dolby Atmos that Apple is sending, in other words, you're getting Dolby Atmos to the Arc, then you can, as long as you're running tvOS 14.6, use the music app on the Apple TV to get not just lossless, but also Dolby Atmos music as well. Now, I have heard people expressing mixed feelings about the whole spatial audio thing, and I would be interested in what people think of it. If you've tried spatial audio this week, because it's been widely released now, What do you think? Is it the next generation of music listening or do you feel like it's a bit of a gimmick? The negative feedback that I'm seeing seems to be coming from people who are listening with headphones. But if you listen to the full Dolby Atmos experience on a Sonos Arc or some sort of other Dolby Atmos capable system that's even better than the Arc that has separate speakers all over the place, the Dolby Atmos experience is just wonderful. Bonnie and I spent a lovely evening yesterday listening to some of the Dolby Atmos content. And they've got some playlists there. They also are showcasing the 2019 Dolby Atmos mix of Abbey Road. It was just amazing. But the best thing that I've heard on Dolby Atmos actually using this method was Grover Washington Jr.'s Just the Two of Us. I love that song. And of course, it's got Bill Withers doing the vocals. But man, the Dolby Atmos mix they've made of this is just tremendous. So if you can do that with the Sonos, then that would be one way of experiencing some of the new things that Apple Music has to offer. But yeah, what we really want, what we really, really want is just the ability to stream that high resolution audio. I'm hopeful that it will happen. If it doesn't happen, it'll be because of some sort of business decision on either Apple's or Sonos's part, because Sonos does play the lossless codec that Apple Music is using. So to the best of my knowledge, there's no technical reason why we are not going to have lossless on Sonos. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. This email, it's a hard one for me to read. It's from Jesse Tregarthen, and he says, Hello, Jonathan and all. Thank you for the great podcast. I look forward to the notification every week that a new episode has been posted. 
I wanted to comment on the discussion about how we're sometimes treated by the medical profession. In 2016, I became a father to a beautiful boy named Obsidian. He was born 10 weeks early due to some complications and had to spend time in the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, or NICU. This was a very difficult time for my partner and me. Lots of time spent dodging wires and tubes and getting to know what all the beeps and alarms meant. Quite a lot of the experiences we had were pleasant. Most of the nurses were amazing. I'll always have a special place in my heart for the NICU and the doctors and nurses who helped my little fighter through his first big hurdle. Unfortunately, some of the experiences we had were very disheartening and added a lot of stress to two scared young parents. Some of the experiences included somebody asking if there was somebody coming to take care of me when we were checking in for a procedure my partner was required to have because of pregnancy complications. I also had to complain to the charge nurse after the nurse assigned to my son refused to let me help bathe or bottle feed my son because she said these jobs were too visual. After that, somebody contacted Child Services, who opened a case against us. The basis of the whole thing turned out to be that they didn't believe I could be left alone with our son. I finally contacted the CNIB to get some advice on how to handle this. I was told to tell them that the CNIB would be willing to advocate on my behalf and would help me take it to court if it came to that. As soon as I told them this, they dropped the case, but not before telling us we should be thankful they found us to be fit parents and decided to close the case. I should have pursued this further, but as a new parent, I was just glad they were leaving me alone. I was also asked not to bring Obsidian to his paediatric appointments because I took up too much of the doctor's time, even though I could undress and dress him in less time than I was allotted to do so. Despite all this, Obsidian is now four years old and is a brilliant ball of energy with no signs of his premature birth. Now, there is more on a different topic from Jesse, but I'm just going to stop and say this really... I cannot articulate the emotions that an email like this makes me feel. It breaks my heart and it also makes me so angry. This is my worst nightmare. When Amanda, who was sighted, and I were bringing our children into the world, we picked the medical staff very carefully and we gave them a briefing. We made sure that they understood that I was going to be a full partner in the birthing process. We did a lot of education to avoid it because I really was very scared of this happening. Like you, Jesse, our little Heidi, when she was born, she was in neonatal for a while because she had hypoglycemia. And it is a very scary time. It's supposed to be such a happy occasion. And, you know, when the birth happens, it's just so wonderful, this miraculous thing. And then your little bundle of joy, all the things you've hoped for, has finally arrived and they're connected to tubes and wired up and there's all this uncertainty it's deeply stressful and then to have this crap on top of it i just can't tell you how sorry i am that you went through that and it shouldn't happen and i know it does i mean i have heard through american organizations especially about advocacy endeavors 
because children have been confiscated from their perfectly capable blind parents just because of ignorance and bigotry and no one being willing to listen. It is so frightening. I'm glad you got it sorted out relatively easily, even though it would have been stressful. And your wee boy sounds amazing. Look after those times. They go quickly. Jesse continues on a lighter note. I wanted to respond to a question from a couple of weeks ago regarding the Amazon Fire tablets. I own the latest release of the 7-inch model. It can be slow and the battery isn't great, but that's to be expected from a tablet at that price. I'm very impressed with the Voice View screen reader. I feel like it's the best of both worlds between TalkBack and VoiceOver. I feel like they identified some of the holes in TalkBack and filled them with parts of VoiceOver. I enjoy having the magic tap to play and stop music. It makes a great tablet for children, and I pay for the Amazon Kids Plus subscription, which provides lots of books, games, and shows tailored to my son's age and interests. I also use it to occasionally browse Facebook, or listen to stations on the Sirius XM app. Our next contribution is asked to remain anonymous, but says that they are in the UK. I have had a range of experiences with healthcare from a blindness perspective. The first challenge can be access to information. In the UK, we do have an accessible information standard, which means medical information should be provided in a format of your choice. In practice, there are often problems getting this, This can lead to some strange needs to use workarounds, such as seeing AI, as you experience with your jab. Anyone seeing this tech seems amazed at its capabilities, and fortunately, I have had people show interest rather than laugh. However, I had an appointment with a consultant who was very dismissive about the need to have accessible letters when a nurse raised it, and assumed that I would have a carer at home. This takes me on to my second point about medics' understanding of disability and the lives we can lead. For example, when the potential impacts on fertility of a surgery were discussed, the consultant said that this is not an issue for disabled people. To be fair, the nurse in the appointment was shocked and spoke to me afterwards, but I did not opt to have treatment with this provider. I think that part of the lack of understanding that blind people may hold down jobs, travel and have families is because we ask medics to certify visual impairment when any sensible person should be able to use a registered blind certificate, a form we have in the UK where a medic has certified level of sight to see, for example, that a blind person cannot drive, but yet we insist on asking a GP to certify. My concern is that this can impact employment. For example, after time off due to a bereavement, I was sent to my work doctor. They only focused on my blindness, leaving me frustrated that the actual issue was not addressed. Another time when I was really struggling due to negative treatments due to my blindness and work, the same failure to make adjustments. The same doctor argued that I needed therapy to adjust to not having the right adjustments. When a working version of JAWS and some scripts, which the government will fund, will enable a person to be a productive contributing member to the workforce, 
offering medical treatment to fix them feels harmful and counterproductive to me. I wonder how often blindness impacts the treatment we receive. Visual changes, e.g. blood in urine or rashes, are hard to describe, and some things are not something I want to ask a family member or someone on an app about. I can, however, use apps to get assistance with medical problems to good effect, e.g. I cut my arm cooking, and through a FaceTime with my friend, could establish that the cut, while bleeding a lot, was fine with a plaster. Despite our inability to explain visual things well, I feel the biggest problem is attitudes. There is a lot of research about women and ethnic minorities having worse health outcomes with pain often undertreated. I feel that there is a general lack of confidence in a disabled person's account, and this can be worsened by the intersection of gender, ethnicity, or social class. Going to in-person appointments after work in a suit felt like it significantly changed the way the GP spoke to me, using longer words and more adult sentence structures. I wonder what is a community we can do to improve experiences of healthcare for blind people. My suggestions are as follows. 1. Share patient stories and voice. 2. Push that legislation affecting disabled people, for example the UK's Accessible Information Standard, is followed. 3. Give medics the opportunity to see capable blind people. Too often they are encountering elderly people who have lost sight and not had appropriate training. 4. Identify adjustments that can help a personal bugbear of mine, which is that despite Braille medicine packets in the UK, pharmacists often put the sticker details over this, and I either try and read through the sticker or peel off and hope not to destroy my Braille. 5. Advocate for what we really need. Too often I have seen people ask for a family member or carer to stay with them during appointments and tests as an adjustment. My belief is that for certain conditions this may be needed and some people may get reassurance through it. But if appropriate guidance and descriptions are provided, a blind person does not need to be cared for and this should not be a presumed right of exemption for COVID rules. 6. Compile a list of practical things that help. For example, when admitted to a hospital, I ask for the following. People to address me by name and say who they are and their job function. My bed, if possible, is close to a toilet, either in a side room or ward location that means I don't need to call for help. People tell me what they are doing and hand me medicines or touch my hand to where food or drink is. As unwell, I find it harder to pick up if these things have happened. I appreciate this is long. I think there is a lot more we need to think about on how the social model of disability can be understood by an audience whose role is in the medical model. Well, as you can hear on this show from time to time, there are lots of disabled people who are not yet on board with the social model of disability. And particularly if you've got medical staff who may have uh, studied some years ago, perhaps they were just never exposed to training about how to probably work with disabled people, about expectations. But I think your summary there is absolutely right on. They think of us as medical problems. They're focusing on the impairment and not on the social model of disability. 
I wonder what goes on in medical schools these days. And I may well check this out, actually, in the New Zealand context. Is there a module where they talk about engaging properly, respectfully with disabled people? I did want to pick up on one thing you said, because I think it's really important. I have noticed this, too. If I'm wearing a suit, I'm far less likely to be patronized. Fortunately for me, it's kind of day wear for me in my present job. But I will not go to a doctor, you know, unless I'm dragged in with some sort of major accident. I will not go to a doctor without wearing a suit because it does make a difference to how you're treated. It really does. Alison Fallon is back and she says, hello, Jonathan. I had a knee replacement in December of 2019. I went to a compulsory class before the surgery and wanted to record the class and was told that was not allowed. I had the surgery and when it was time to discharge me, I was not permitted to record the discharge instructions. They told me that someone at home could read them to me. I said that that option was not acceptable and ultimately I was allowed to record them, but only if there was an additional staff member in the room when the nurse read me the instructions. That policy hasn't changed. Thanks, Alison. Isn't so much of this the luck of the draw? I guess that's the case with any discrimination that we experience. You just sometimes get the luck of the draw and find somebody who is unreasonable. See, by way of contrast, I woke up a couple of years ago now. I was pretty new into this current job, which I started in June 2019, And I had such excruciating shoulder pain. It was really bad. I couldn't even dress myself. And I got sent to this specialist, this sort of sports specialist, actually. And they did this thing called dry needling, which was instant relief. I walked in there, basically unable to use one of my arms, and walked out with complete movement restored. It was the most miraculous thing. But anyway, she actually volunteered this. She said, I'm going to give you some exercises just to make sure that you completely recover from this and you should do these things. And she said, why don't you give me your iPhone and I'll record it in the voice memos app for you. That way you've got the exact instructions. And I said, what a genius idea. So she actually came up with that. So you have good and bad experiences, don't you? This email comes from Matt Campbell. Hi, Jonathan. Here's a provocative discussion topic for Mosin at Large in case you need one. Sometimes I feel like we're fighting an uphill battle trying to get software developers to implement accessibility, especially developers that write their own GUI toolkits. Narrator's note, GUI is spelt G-U-I and it stands for Graphical User Interface. Matt continues, there are so many GUI toolkits out there and the vast majority of them are completely inaccessible with a screen reader. I participate in a couple of discussion sites for programmers, and from time to time, I'll see a posting about a new or obscure GUI toolkit on one of these sites. Invariably, when I run the demo app, it's completely inaccessible. Thankfully, I'm no longer the only one calling attention to this problem. A common response is that the platform accessibility APIs like UI automation on Windows are hard to implement, especially in a cross-platform toolkit or application. And based on my experience, I have to agree. As you know, iOS 14 introduced screen recognition, which uses machine learning to identify not only the text on the screen, but the structure of the UI. 
there's nothing stopping Microsoft, Google, and Amazon from implementing something like this as well for their respective platforms. So this makes me wonder if the battle to get developers to directly implement accessibility is now a waste of time. I'll be sad if, in the future, it takes a cutting-edge processor or a connection to a cloud service to provide the same level of real-time access to a GUI that we had on a Pentium in the 90s. But I also realize that it's impractical to expect the long tail of developers to go to great lengths to accommodate us. We may argue that these developers should just use the platform's standard controls, but there are reasons why they don't, and we won't change that. I'm thinking of starting an open-source project to make it easier for developers to make their custom GUI implementations accessible, so they don't have to implement UI automation and all of the other platform accessibility APIs. But I wonder if VoiceOver's screen recognition and the imitators that I'm sure will follow has made this work irrelevant. Thanks, Matt. I guess I feel like there's probably some middle ground. Interestingly, what you are arguing is what Accessibility has been arguing in the context specifically of websites, that basically we're losing the battle in terms of traditional accessibility paradigms, and it's time for something new. I guess what the community has been saying to Accessibility, though, is that what they're offering is actually an inferior experience to what we had before. I don't think we can afford to be too purist about this. We've got a high unemployment rate. Things are pretty dire for us, despite all of the technological advances that we've had in the last three decades especially. So if anything can be done to make more jobs available by making more things accessible, and they actually work, then I think it's worth checking out. It's a very interesting discussion, and I look forward to anyone else who wants to contribute on this and also to your evolving thinking on this, Matt. Corey Ballard is writing in and says, Afternoon, Jonathan. I thought I would reach out and ask the pro a quick question. Well, no pressure. I do have a twice-weekly live webinar with a co-worker, and we broadcast using Zoom. We have a pretty good setup using Open Broadcast Studio for the visual side and use an A&H Z10FX for our mixer. Where we struggle is that Zoom will only accept two channels of sound. Most of our sessions would have at least three sound sources, usually two mics, and then a computer or smartphone. Is there a good way to connect a mixer to a computer so that Zoom will accept all of our channels? Thanks so much for the help. Corey, sadly, I'm not going to be much help. I know that the Z10FX is a digital mixer. I have the Allen & Heath Z22FX, and it is an analog mixer. So in that case, all of the channels go out to Zoom. It is no problem to have all of those 22 channels sending audio to Zoom because what Zoom is receiving is simply a stereo signal. So if there's a way to simply take the stereo output that's coming from all channels and send it into Zoom, even if you have to do that in an analog way, like if you could take say, a couple of RCAs going from a line output of the mixer that hears all sound and send it into an audio interface, then you'd be able to use all the channels. I think the issue is relating to the fact that the digital signal is only sending 
a pair of channels, but because I am not directly familiar with the mixer, I don't know if there was a workaround for this. What I would suggest you do is give Alan and Heath a call or get in touch with them on the email. In the limited number of times I've had to contact them, they have been very helpful. However, there may well be other blind people out there in the Mosin at Large community who have this Z10 FX mixer from Alan and Heath and could potentially give you some pointers. Alternatively, there are people with all sorts of mixes and audio combinations on the Blind Podmaker email list, and it could be worth subscribing there to see if anyone else can help you. You can drop an email to creators-subscribe at theblindpodmaker.com if you want to join that. It's a really good list. Lots of interesting audio discussion there. Creators-subscribe at theblindpodmaker.com. But if you have an answer for Corey, please let us know. We will be interested in it. Maribel wrote in during the Melbourne lockdown and says, Hi, Jonathan. Greetings from locked down Melbourne for seven days at least. I enjoy getting your updates and noticed you are going to be talking about all things Apple on the next podcast. I am a PC user and wondered if you have a podcast you can point me to where you talk about using Windows 10 with JAWS. I have a new computer and just can't get started as it is so different to the one I am on now, which runs Windows 7. I feel like such a tech dinosaur while I hear Apple zooming you into a parallel universe. I think if I could find some podcasts describing how to get JAWS and Windows 10 working together, I might like to get into the driver's seat right now. I am limping along on the old system. Thanks, Maribel. I think your best resource would be the JAWS training material. If you go to the help menu in JAWS, which is just the same structure on Windows 10 as it is in Windows 7, and you choose training, you will find the JAWS basic training, which has been substantially updated to accommodate Windows 10. There are many other training resources if you go to freedomscientific.com slash training. And there is now a Freedom Scientific training podcast that I recommend you subscribe to every week. They are dealing with different applications, different aspects of the operating system. If you are wanting to make the most of your computer, it is a very informative listen. So this is one of the great things about Freedom Scientific is that they invest a lot in their training resources. So start with the basic training, work your way up from there. And I wish you all the best with the new toy. Hi, Jonathan. Great to listen to your podcast. You do a great job as usual. Having heard earlier this year you swapped over to a Dell computer, I just did the same in the last couple of days. I got the XPS 13-inch top spec. I love it. But I find when I'm trying to plug in my headphones and listen to JAWS or anything like that, the sound is very spatial. I'm not sure how to turn that off, even though I went into Windows and Sound and toggled the off spatial sound. Also, I use a Bluetooth keyboard, a Logitech K780, and even though I've downloaded the software and ticked to use the function keys as F1 to F12, it doesn't seem to want to do this. Any thoughts on that one? I was using it on a HP laptop before and had not no problem. 
Any help would be appreciated. I'll do my best, Michael. First, congratulations on getting a new precious, a new shiny. It is always nice to get something new and shiny, but slightly frustrating when you've got just those minor configuration things that aren't quite working the way that you want. Let's deal with these two issues. First, the function keys issue that's easily fixed. Press the FN key with escape, and that toggles function lock. So if you press FN with escape... You will get the function keys behaving like normal function keys. Press FN with escape again. It'll go back to its default state of making the function keys perform their special Dell-related function. Of course, when you want to get either of the other states that is not the default, you hold down the FN key. The audio in the Dell is really nice, but some of it does have a detrimental effect on screen reader sound, particularly with headphones. To get around this, I believe the utility is called Max Audio Pro, but I certainly recall that it wasn't accessible and that I needed sighted assistance with Ira to get this fixed. You have to go in there and make sure that you don't have any equalization settings enabled, certainly for headphones. It doesn't seem to matter so much for speakers, but for the headphones, it's good to just get a flat signal coming into your headphones. And you can disable all of those settings in that utility but it's not accessible. Good luck with your new Dell. I really like my XPS 15. Boy, it is fast. It's the fastest laptop that I've ever had, and I use it more as a result. It's not as thin and light as some laptops I've had in the past, but because this is such a good performer, it means that I get my audio editing done more quickly because it's got lots of horsepower. I don't feel like it's slowing me down. It's a very fast gorgeous machine this xps 15 i'm really happy with it but i still do not have an update that matthew horseball said he's got for his xps 13 where the home and end functions are now back on the function with left and right arrow keys i hope you get that michael on your xps 13 because matthew had an xps 13 it has not turned up on my xps 15 yet if anybody has an xps 15 and they've got the home and end keys working on function with left and right arrow again after a firmware update, I'd be interested in hearing about that because I hope vainly so far every time I get a new update that it's going to fix it today because that's the one thing that really annoys me about this laptop. I guess what makes it tolerable is that a lot of the time I'm using my Mantis anyway, which has a QWERTY keyboard that I like to use and I can use the home and end keys in that way, sort of bypassing the uh, keyboard on the Dell itself, which is a lovely keyboard to type on. This email is from David Zamarski. Good to hear from you, David. I remember our FS cast interview way back when with fondness, and he says, Hi, Jonathan. I'm curious to know if anyone using JAWS has a way to navigate iTunes. I don't know if John Martin still tries to make it work with his program. I don't know how to get to the left pane where the library and list of artist folders is. I had it and lost it and don't know any command to get it back. Any help would be welcome. Thank you, David. iTunes has changed a lot, and I'm afraid I'm one of those people who finds it really bloated and convoluted and just more bother than it's actually worth. The only thing that I use iTunes for is to make an encrypted backup of my iPhone, particularly at times when we're playing with early iOS betas. You could try seeing what's in the view menu to make sure that what you are wanting is not hidden. 
And usually F6 is your friend. F6 moves you between major pains in iTunes, which can sometimes be a major pain. If anybody has any hints on this, any scripts that they know about, then please share them with us. Hi, Jonathan. It's John Moore. I just read the latest transcript. I wanted to chime in a little bit about uh, your comments about recording things. I have to say, I agree with you 100%. I view making recordings like having cameras. It amazes me how many people don't seem to understand that we would like to preserve things too. And they get hostile if you even mention that you want to record something in audio and yet they have video cameras themselves and they're always shooting shooting video. I think it's safe to say that I can I consider it the exact same thing. And it's the same concept. I use uh, Olympus recorders and core sound binaural microphones personally. Those have worked out for what I prefer to use and they work perfectly. And so uh, those are what I use, but I, you know, to each his own. I just wanted to say that I agree with you 100%. And I think that uh, it's great how you did that. And, you know, you inspired a lot of us with the old bloggy bits podcast to start doing it ourselves. Uh, and I still do it. You know, when I uh, go to the amusement park next weekend, I'm going to be making a lot of recordings with uh, binaural microphones, without binaural microphones, and even the Apple Watch. So uh, I'm going to be making a lot. And it's for that reason that you were talking about. You want to preserve your memories. And uh, I think that a recorder is the best way to do that. I do understand that sometimes it is not wise to record. And I try to honor people who do not want to be recorded whenever I can. But uh, I also feel that preserving memories is best done with recording for me as a blind person. You know, text fades away and it doesn't convey the same meaning. I would love for you to start doing some more binaural recordings again. Those were a lot of fun, especially when you tried to play air hockey on that one podcast or when you went on the slingshot. Uh, that's still one of the funniest ride recordings I have ever heard from anyone. Uh, and, I, and I'm a ride enthusiast. Uh, who makes recordings all the time. Gosh, I had completely forgotten about the Bloggy Bits podcast, to be honest, John. That is going way back. I think that was one of the first podcasts I did in around 2004, and we did keep that going for a while. So it's nice that you remember that far back with so much fondness. You are so right that text doesn't have the same meaning. And as I mentioned in the episode when we discussed this, I'm so glad that I have all of these recordings of my children. But something really interesting happened. When I was going through those recordings for David's 21st and putting a montage together, I found a recording of my dad who was on a recording with David. And I don't have a lot of audio of my dad. And he died four years ago. And I really regret not having more audio of him. So that was actually the first time that I'd heard his voice since he died. I'd forgotten that I had this recording, actually. And nothing can substitute for hearing a voice like that. Nothing can. For all things Mosin at large, check out the website, where you can listen to episodes online, subscribe using your favourite podcast app, and contact the show. Just point your browser to podcast.mosin.org. That's podcast.mosen.org. This email is from Angus McKinnon, who writes, Jonathan, do you ever use something 
like the FIO, that's F-I-I-O, Q1, Mark II, DAC. No, I don't, Angus. DAC, by the way, is a digital-to-analog converter. I have not used one of these or anything like it. And I assume you may be asking this question because of the changes coming to Apple Music, where you will be able to get not just lossless, but high-resolution music. And certainly the high-resolution music will benefit from a good quality digital-to-analog converter. It's not something I have tried, and if anybody has and wants to share product recommendations and the quality of the user experience, then my audio geeky heart would be gladdened by your contribution. Send it in by email or with an audio attachment, maybe using your digital-to-analog converter, to jonathan at mushroomfm.com, the listener line number 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. This email is from Pam Francis, who writes, Hello, Jonathan. What is your opinion concerning Apple's decision to make their computers in such a way that you cannot replace parts? I got one of the last Apple computers that will allow you to take it apart. I don't know if I want another one, given that I cannot have it repaired properly. I think Apple does this on purpose to create obsolescence. The price is also cost prohibitive. Thanks, Pam. I know that there is a lot of debate about this. There are right to repair bills that are going through various legislatures in the United States. Maybe some have already passed. And I know that a number of manufacturers, Apple included, are quite vociferous in their lobbying against this kind of legislation. I think, to Apple's credit, that Macs do last quite a long time. And I'm not sure that Apple's the only culprit here. You do get computers where something seemingly innocuous happens, like you've got a USB port that stops working. And actually, I had this issue with a 2012 MacBook Air that I owned. And I'm careful with my stuff. I wasn't misusing it in any way. But one day I tried to insert something into the USB port and it wouldn't go in. Something had happened to the USB port. And I called Apple. I think this was about maybe a year after I got it. So 2013. Not that long, given the supposed quality of Apple's stuff and how long they really should last. And I called Apple support and they said, oh, gosh, I've never heard of this before. And I Googled on it and it was a really common problem. The Apple forums were littered with people who had this problem with the MacBook Air USB port. And I called them back and I said, listen, the Internet's full of people having the same issue as me. You've got a manufacturing defect here. And even if that were not the case, unless you can clearly prove that I have misused the equipment, We have law in New Zealand called the Consumer Guarantees Act, and that overrides any manufacturer's warranty. If it is fair and reasonable to expect a product to last longer than it has, then it's up to the manufacturer to put it right, regardless of what the guarantee or the warranty says. The law of the land basically overrides whatever they say. And so they did fix it. But to fix it, they actually had to open it up and rip out the entire motherboard (laughs) just for one USB port and put the new motherboard in. And I guess that's how intricately woven these manufacturing processes are now. But Apple's not unique in that regard. There are many laptops that are complex in this way where everything's just really clearly associated with the motherboard. I am pretty zen about this. I guess we're protected in New Zealand by the fact that we do have that legislation 
It is pretty robust and it's on the side of the consumer. But I think if you abandoned Apple for this reason, you're probably going to get a very similar problem with any capable manufacturer these days. And I do know people who are using quite elderly Macs by technological computing standards who are getting good value out of them. This email is from Paul D'Addario, who says, Dear Jonathan, your podcast is consistently informative, inspirational, and entertaining. One topic you regularly stress is the inappropriate use of the word blind and related terms. After regularly reading terms such as blind eye, blind with anger, blind to the facts, and blind hatred in editorial columns in the Washington Post, I thought I'd submit to you my recent contribution to the newspaper, which they printed in their May 29th edition. Here we go. The headline is Shedding Light on Blindness. While reading Dana Milbank's May 13 Thursday opinion column, The Cancel Culture, Republicans Just Cancelled Liz Cheney, I was saddened to read another routine example of how blind people are stereotyped, in part by the misuse of the word blind. Such examples are in articles and on the opinion pages of the Post nearly every week, sometimes several times a week. Milbank Rose of the GOP, now it has cancelled a stalwart conservative and daughter of a former vice president. The Republican irony blindness doesn't stop there. Equating the actions of the Republican House members with blindness is an inappropriate and harmful use of the word blindness. The House members may be making a poor and ill-informed decision, maybe even a harmful and cowardly decision, but their eyesight has nothing to do with their decision or ironic actions. Such a poor use of the word helps perpetuate the notion that being blind is a condition that leaves one out of touch unaware and unable to obtain and properly analyze information. The actions of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, our caliph, and his House colleagues may demonstrate a refusal to face the facts, but they do not demonstrate blindness. I am blind, but have not been blind all my life. I noticed, as I became blind, gradually because of an inherited condition, that people began treating me as being unaware, ignorant, etc., I'm proud of the many skills I developed to continue to work and, among other activities, read newspapers, which I listen to every day. The Post's style book should be changed so that the paper sticks to using the word blind as meaning a condition when eyes do not work well enough for someone to see. Such eyeballs do not prohibit one from being informed, learning or being aware. Wow, well done, Paul. That really does deserve a round of applause there. Yes, it does. I hope it inspires more people to stand up against this harmful, deplorable, ableist language that we're seeing in the media so much. We should be calling this out. And eventually, if enough of us call it out frequently, we will get the change that we deserve and we desperately need. Congratulations on doing that. And thank you so much for sending it in. Dawn writes, Hi Jonathan, I heard you talking about writing Braille when iOS devices are connected to the Mantis. I went straight to mine and Bluetoothed to my iPhone. When I tried to use Braille input, I discovered it would only allow me to use the typewriter keyboard. I pressed F12, which is the hotkey that toggles the keyboard input, 
but couldn't manage to get it to switch between input methods. Is this an iOS problem? If so, it is a great shortcoming on Apple's part. As far as a sound or vibration that tells you when the phone is active, I am with you all the way. Thank you, Dawn. No, you cannot use the Braille keyboard emulation mode in anything but the programs on the Mantis itself. That is a function that belongs to the Mantis software, and it doesn't translate to terminal mode. I'm really relaxed about that. If I wanted to Braille into my iPhone, I could have chosen another device. I want to be able to type into iPhone with the QWERTY keyboard precisely because of the bizarre Braille input anomalies that we've talked about extensively in recent weeks with many listeners contributing on that subject. I don't perceive this to be an Apple issue. I guess there might be a way for humanware who do the software for APH to make this available in terminal mode, but I think that is actually at the uh, APH slash humanware end. Greg says, I have been thinking quite a bit about two points you have been raising over the last few weeks, the one-eyed man and blind pride, and frankly struggling with them. In large part, this comes from a belief that you have a great deal of misconception of what having the sense of vision is like. For example, your one-eyed man assertion that he would be distracted by an overload of visual stimulus is just absurdly removed from reality, as anyone experiencing visual distraction can easily close their eyes. You and several others who apparently have been blind from birth equate vision with data. Again, this is absurd. From an evolutionary standpoint, in comparison to other species, vision is by far the most developed of the human senses, and losing it is a major disability. And while blind people do face discrimination in many ways, including ignorance of our capabilities, I don't see how we can advance our cause by untruthful assertions as if blindness is not a disability at all. I am not either proud or ashamed of being blind. If I had the choice, I would love to get my sight fully or partially restored. I am proud of how I have accepted my blindness and of who I am as a person, blind or otherwise. We do need to advance the cause of the place of blind people in our society and equal opportunity and justice. But we must do so with honesty and integrity and laughably absurd assertions minimizing the loss of vision only make us look ridiculous and rejection out of hand. If blind pride moves that forward, I'm all for it, but, and it's a big but, we can't misrepresent what blindness is any more than, I presume than, we should allow sighted people to put false limitations on us. Thank you, Greg. Some of the most eloquent emails on the subject that we've received have come from Andrew Walker, who said in his email that he has been sighted and went blind later in life as an adult. And it was because of Andrew's email that I dug out the one-eyed man speech that I delivered in 2016. So adventitiously and congenitally blind people alike, and adventitiously and congenitally disabled people alike, are increasingly subscribing to the social model of disability. I also think you contradict your own argument when you talk about vision being the most developed sense. It absolutely is, and that's why if the one-eyed man had vision, he would not close his eyes. 
he would be distracted in a society that was not built for vision if you were in the kingdom of the blind. That's the point of the example. The point of the example is to illustrate the social model of disability, which I accept is taking a long time to gain any kind of foothold in the United States. But it is a model that has been adopted here. It's a really empowering model. It gives disabled people the confidence and the mandate to demand that society stop making disabling choices. The social model of disability says that blindness is not a disability, and that's what I believe. It's not a matter of being dishonest or lacking integrity just because I don't agree with you. (laughs) I believe it because when you subscribe to the social model of disability, what you're saying is that we all have impairments of different kinds. If you are short and you can't reach a particular shelf, then you are disabled by bad design. Luckily, in a situation as simple as that, you can usually find an accommodation to mitigate that disability, which is standing on a stool. Some impairments are more severe than others and have greater consequences than others. And certainly, the consequences of having a vision impairment are significant. But they're not significant because of the vision impairment itself. They're significant because of the choices society has chosen to make around the construction of society. If a lot of information about my environment was provided tactually or audibly, then the fact that I'm blind would be less disabling than it is. That's the whole point of the social model of disability. And those of us who do promote it are making inroads. Because when I explain this to a wide range of audiences, they get it. They understand, actually, that there are many things that disable them for whatever reason. And some are mitigated and some are not. And it's time that we mitigated as many as possible. Now, I accept that not everybody is there. People are at varying stages, particularly those who've gone through the very disturbing upheaval of having lost a sense that is so dominant and that it is so easy naturally to depend on. And then you suddenly can't depend on it anymore. I've had no experience of that, except that I do have deteriorating hearing. And so I do relate to it in that sense. I know what it is like to rely on something and then find that you can't rely on it as much anymore. Or if you've had some sort of accident that has taken your sight away immediately, you know, you've never had that adjustment at all. Suddenly you had it. Now you don't. That is a major, major thing to adjust to. And I don't minimize that at all. People's perspective on blindness and disability will vary, but it isn't some sort of clear arbitrary distinction between the congenitally and adventitiously disabled as the show has demonstrated. David Green is writing in on this topic and says, I am happy to say that I no longer am ashamed to be blind, and I don't think I can say that I am proud to be blind. I have never met you in person, but here are my observations that give you freedom to be a person who is proud to be blind. And look at this, it is presented in a lovely bulleted list. You have a sharp, keen mind. You are an extrovert. You are well-read and well-educated. You seem to be humble. You have an interest in people. I would think you are rarely in a place where you are lost for words. You being you makes you user-friendly to the blind and sighted community. 
You are widely recognized as a public voice with recognized achievements. For example, let's take a situation at an airport. You are getting off the plane and a wheelchair is offered to you or even insisted. Your gift set puts you in the place of not being lost for words, quick and able to advocate and educate on the spot. You have a lot to be proud of and it is recognizable. Now, continues David, let's take another person who is as equally gifted as you, but in a totally different area. This person is an introvert. They bury their head in writing code for accessible technology. They don't have the gift of the gab, and everything has to be thought through before making a decision. They may not be able to advocate for themselves on the spot, and as a result, feel that they are not so proud to be blind. They are not ashamed, they just feel that blindness can be a nuisance. As always, your podcast is the marmalade on my toast every Sunday morning here in Ottawa, Canada. Delicious. Thank you very much for your email, David. I'm not sure that I would agree with all of those very flattering portrayals. But even if we assumed that they were true in a general sense about people, can a person who is introverted and quieter and perhaps struggles to find the right word sometimes, isn't as assertive, be proud to be blind. I think they can. The skills that you are talking about, particularly self-advocacy, are very important. And I wish that we could encourage more people to get involved in self-advocacy training. It's the whole thing about give somebody a fish versus teaching them to fish. If you advocate for somebody else, then you may well help to address their immediate problem. But if you equip them with self-advocacy skills, you're setting them up to be able to handle a wide range of scenarios as they arise in a constructive way. But that, I think, is separate from the subject of blind pride. You can be quietly proud. I mean, a dad, for example, who is the strong, silent type, not one for massive displays of emotion, for example, can still be very proud of one of their children's achievements in academia or on the sports field. I think that pride is separate from your expression of the pride. I guess that's what I'm saying. You may be quietly proud of what being blind means to you. Hello, Jonathan. Um, my name is Michelle Ritholtz-Bernstein. And I was listening to your latest podcast. I think it's number 126. I just wanted to comment about something that you mentioned in the podcast, which may apply to some other of your listeners besides myself. You mentioned when you were talking about in the wish list for what you'd like to see with Apple that you find it difficult to understand why some blind and low vision users prefer the Victor Reader stream over the iPhone. And I am one of those people who prefers the Victor Reader stream over the iPhone. And I am low vision and became visually impaired as an adult. Um, I did not grow up in the blind community at all. But when I became visually impaired, I learned how to use the Victor Reader stream. And it is my preferred way to listen to audiobooks and listen to podcasts and even listen to NFT Newsline as well. And the reason is, is very simple. It's tactile. And a part of my vision loss involves having extreme light sensitivity. And the iPhone, with its blue light, 
even if you dial down the volume and, you know, change it to grayscale and, and things like that, it's very uh, disorienting to my eyes. It, it's very difficult for me to use the phone. Even if I turn off the screen curtain, there's just something about the iPhone that I, I just, I, I, it's very irritating to my eyes. So I use it as a phone and, you know, a couple of other things. But in terms of listening to audiobooks and podcasts, which I do for several hours each day, I find it much more comfortable for me to use the Victor Reader Stream. I have, you know, it took me a little while. I learned how to use it. And now my fingers just do everything automatically. I have it set up with Wi-Fi, so the podcasts are downloaded automatically. I can search. I live in the U.S., so I can search Bard easily. I use it to listen to Bookshare books. I use it for NFP Newsline. And while I do understand that it is expensive, I personally found the iPhone actually a little more expensive when I purchased my iPhone. But I do think that for some people who have extreme light sensitivity, as I do, having the tactileness of the Victorita stream is very helpful. And I've tried to share this with other people that I've met who are low vision, who have also had difficulty using the iPhone for various reasons, that this is a good option for them, you know, assuming that uh, they're willing to learn how to use Victorita Stream and, that, of course, that they can afford it. So thank you for your podcast. I, as, as someone who's new to the blind community, I find it very helpful and informative. Well, thank you, Michelle, for taking the time to share your perspective. It's great that we have this choice of technology and it helps me and maybe others to understand why some people make the different choices that they do. So that was a very informative message and I appreciate it. Here is someone I can't identify because only their email address is in the from field. So we don't have a name, mm, but they are a happy Elbrow user. Hope everything is going well at Mosin Towers, says this unknown person. I wanted to give you my impressions about the Elbraille since I last asked you about it during one of your shows. So here we go. Summary. The Elbraille is a docking station for a Focus 40 Blue Braille display. The user runs JAWS either with a license or with the annual home license just like on their laptop or desktop computer. The Focus slides in from the left and clicks into place. The overall unit is well put together and doesn't weigh much. Learning the unit, as well as Braille-in with JAWS, took about a week. I managed using a wired keyboard until I got familiar with the layout and functions. Many people have told me that learning to use the Braille keyboard would be hard, and I'd want to use a regular keyboard. I found this to be incorrect for me, as I prefer typing in Braille as my primary medium and wanted to force myself to use the Perkins keyboard only. The fan at the top middle of the unit is quiet and only seems to spin up during tasks such as multiple tabs, multiple Word documents and Outlook running at the same time, running all programs together. This doesn't slow the performance of the unit down at all, though. I found the performance to be reliable and fast, without any issues of slowing down, even with a few programs running at a time. Since the Elbraille is a Windows environment, running any Windows program is easy and works just as expected. Nothing more I can say about that. I thought that I'd not be used to the spacebar being split between dot .1 and dot .4, but I've grown to like it. I also have a Q Braille and find that spacebar to be cramped up. 
Exactly. I've said this since I first laid hands on the Q-Braille. Since the L-Braille is, in all sense of the word, a portable computer, I feel the need to no longer carry my laptop and grab for my L-Braille instead. People have said that the SAD would be a laptop replacement. I think we might be reading iPad here, but it says SAD. That's an interesting Braille error. Anyway, uh, my L-Braille is my laptop replacement. Once configured correctly, the user of the L-Braille will be very happy, in my opinion, if given the opportunity and forcing oneself to learn the Braille-in method. The L-Braille is an excellent choice. I must say that my work bought me this device, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to afford it myself. However, I love my L-Braille, and my dreams of having a truly portable computer have come true with the L-Braille. We have recently been talking about what collaboration is like in Microsoft Word if you use a Mac, and Ernest has some experience of this. He says, Hi Jonathan, I have experienced working in a Word document on a Mac in the application, not in the browser, and collaborating in real time, and it works great. We were only two people, so I'm unsure how it will work with several people. I liked that VoiceOver announced feedback when a person opened a document, like person name is here. Thank you, Ernest. It's good to know that that collaboration is coming along so nicely on the Mac because it is something that I make extensive use of with JAWS on Windows. Hey, Jonathan. It's John Lipsy from Utah. I have an interesting tech conundrum for you and the Mosin at large crowd. I have an Echo Studio, which I purchased in, oh god, October. And this problem has been there since the beginning, but I just have learned to live with it. And I finally was like, no, I want this to work as it's supposed to. So in addition to all of the other Amazon, like, A-lady skills and music and things that I use my studio for, I Bluetooth it to my Apple TV. I have an Apple TV HD with the latest publicly released uh, software version. And I Bluetooth it because, A, the audio quality in the studio is better than the audio quality on my little TV speaker, and also the studio is closer to my bed so I can watch TV at a lower volume uh, when I'm laying down and not wake up the rest of the house. And it Bluetooths fine. It connects, voiceover comes through the speaker, which I want, the audio of whatever I'm watching comes through the speaker, as I expected. However, whenever a show ends, or if I have to hit the back button because I changed my mind and want to watch something else, there is a 7 to 10 second time span where I don't have any voiceover audio. It doesn't go back through the TV. It's not rooted through the Echo Studio. It's literally not there. If I forget and try to like swipe through uh, icons, this time lengthens. This has happened on every software version of my Apple TV, which leads me to think it's an issue with the studio itself. I've tried forgetting the Apple TV and repairing it. I've tried erasing the studio and like resetting it. I guess you don't really erase it, but resetting it, whatever. I haven't tried resetting my Apple TV just because it's kind of a pain to download all my apps and get all my credentials and everything. Like I, I could do it if I need to, but I really don't want to. This was not an issue. I had a first-gen Echo for a long time, and this was not an issue with that device. If I went back, audio from VoiceOver would start coming immediately through the Echo as expected, and I could navigate and watch something else. I have a temporary stopgap in place. I purchased Airfoil Satellite from Rogue Amoeba, which lets me connect my Mac via Bluetooth to the Echo Studio, and then AirPlay audio from my Apple TV 
to the Mac, which then goes to the studio. So it's weird, like it's daisy-chained, and it's fine, but if I can get this to work the way it's supposed to, that would be brilliant. So if you have any insights, I would appreciate them. I have more questions about different topics, but I'm going to save those for my next message. As always, it is wonderful hearing your show. I try to catch it every week and hope you and your family are doing well. I guess my first reaction, John, is what a shame the Echo Studio, given that it is a premium speaker in the Amazon line, doesn't offer AirPlay directly. Do you have another Bluetooth speaker you can try this with? I suppose it's difficult when you have a situation like this and you're trying to make two devices from competing manufacturers to talk to one another to get one of them to own up and take responsibility. But if you can prove definitively that this problem isn't happening on other Bluetooth devices that you have access to, then it would seem to me the ball is very much in Amazon's court, particularly if we can find out from other listeners whether they have had the same thing. If they've got one of these Echo Studios and they have tried to pair it with their Apple TV and they've got the same issue with voiceover, that would be useful intel, as they say. So if you can help John with this, please be in touch. one 864 is my number in the United States, and you can also drop me an email with an audio attachment like John did, or just write something down, email it into jonathan at mushroomfm.com. On Twitter, follow Mosin at large for information about the podcast, the latest tech news, and links to things we talk about on the podcast. That's Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter. Here's an email with a moral. And the moral is, we get new listeners all the time. This email says, and it's from Beatrice, by the way. Hi, Jonathan, how are you? I've written to you before, but I wanted to thank you again for all the work you do to help the blind community. That's really kind of you. Thank you, Beatrice. I wanted to ask you about, I believe it's called Soup Drinker, the virtual assistant or search engine you spoke about. How is it obtained? I tried looking for it in the App Store, but was unable to locate it there. Can I find it via a website? Or is it something that can be purchased? Thanks in advance. Well, I tell you, see, Beatrice, I'll give you the secret, which long-time listeners to my shows already know, but new listeners will not. So I'm glad you asked the question. The thing is, you see, that where I can, I will talk about the Amazon Echo. But it's not always as easy as doing that because sometimes the virtual assistant built into the Amazon Echo makes its way to other products. They've made it available to third parties like Sonos and Bose, and it's all over the place. So when I need to refer to it by name, because unlike Siri and Google, where you have to put a hey in front of the names, you just summon this one by saying its name, I've changed the name of mine. So... Whenever I talk about it, I call it the soup drinker. Stop. So that I don't trigger everybody else's devices, soup drinker, stop, devices from around the world. So I can say things like soup drinker. Tell me about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is a 1964 children's novel by... Stop. So if you have an Amazon Echo or any other device that has that virtual assistant in it, then you have the soup drinker. Ah, 
Ah, that beautiful music signifies the arrival of another Bonnie Bulletin live this time with Bonnie Mosin. Hi, everybody. Hi, guys. We could give you a round of applause if you like. Okay. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Yeah, we great. do that at our romance writers' meeting. <laughs> now, we need to try and keep up our impeccable record because last week we had this heart-to-heart talk about the need for us not to talk over each other. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like a form of therapy because this podcast is now being transcribed and we have had incidents where the Bonnie Bulletin was full of the dreaded word crosstalk where we were talking at the same time and the transcriber couldn't figure out what the deuce is going on. So they just put crosstalk. And last week we had a perfect score. Oh, that's great. I wonder what the Senate gets. The Senate's normally actually quite well behaved, isn't it? I find it ironic that in America, everyone, well, not everyone, that's a huge generalization, sorry. In America, there's so much brashness and people not listening to one another and people just being mean and rude and horrible. And yet when you go into the Senate, it's quite genteel still. It's tradition. Yeah. Can't, can't fight tradition. Well, why can't that tradition be kind of transferred to the general public discourse then? I don't know. I mean, you think about a news show, and I'm sure there's lots of cross-talking on Crossfire or lots of cross-talking on Meet the Press. Yeah, I remember when I first saw Crossfire, when CNN came to New Zealand in 1990, and I was just gobsmacked. I thought, Mm -hmm. wow, can't they all just wait for each other to finish? Or any press conference, because they all talk over each other there. Yeah. Well, I have some interesting news to report, and this is that... We have moved into our building now. Uh, This is the new national office of the organization for which I work, and we've moved into it now. And we had a listener who was asking the question about whether you might use a Zoom PodTrack P4 in a work context to sort of have all of your devices coming through one set of headphones. And that's what really inspired me to buy it. And I have to say... It's working like a dream. That's great. So in my office, I have a lapel microphone, my lovely Sony lapel microphone that I can clip onto me, and that's going into one of the inputs in the pod track. Then I have the iPhone going into the special input for the iPhone on channel three of the pod track. And I also have the PC connected via Zoom. So I can hear everything. I can hear notifications from my phone when I'm using my computer. When I'm doing video or audio conferencing or taking phone calls, I can use my high-quality mic. If I need to record any of it, I can for reference or anything like that. And it's just marvelous. The one caveat, though, is that because there's no mix-minus really between the PC and the phone, if I'm on a conference on my PC, I have to remember to wind the channel down from the phone because I was having a conversation on Teams on my PC in the office and some breaking news notification or other came through and it was, you know, clear as day, clear as day to the people on the other end of the team score. But so that is another use for the PodTrack P4 to use it as a, as a little mini mixer in a work environment. So thank you to the genius. And I I don't remember who suggested this. I'm, I'm sorry, a listener a few weeks ago, because thanks to you, I bought this PodTrack P4 and it's working beautifully in that context. I'm sure they'll reveal themselves. 
I'm sure. And our chief operations officer listens to Mosin at large oh, sometimes. Yeah. His favorite segment is the Bonnie Bulletin. That's and so scary. he came into my office and he said, oh, so this is the pod track before. <laughs> he, he knew all about it. <laughs> and uh, we've had a bit of drama with technology. Yeah, the washing machine is still working, but they've managed to update its uh, controller or something. They're doing something with its controller because it's it's downloaded and it's still loading. So either it's the biggest controller on earth or something's wrong because I tried using the washing machine Friday, I guess it was, and it wouldn't work from the controller. And I did manage to get it turned on by the Alexa. Oh. But sorry guys. <laughs> and um but it it got stuck. In some sort of loop. I don't know what happened. So Heidi and Henry had to come over and force it out of its cycle. It does still work, but you can't control it by the app and you can't change what setting it's on. It's stuck on cotton. I'm nervous about this because the background here is that I was reading this book by James Patterson and Bill Clinton. They've come out with a second book. The first one was called The President is Missing. You read that, didn't you? Yes. Did you like that? Uh-huh. Yeah, it was good. Now they've come out with this different one, a different president. It's called the president's daughter, but it's not the same president as the one who was missing. I hope you're keeping up. <laughs> yeah. So, it's not the same. That president had a lot of bad luck. If he was missing, then his daughter was missing. <laughs> Despite my tiredness, on Thursday night, I got to the point where I had to finish the book. So I kept reading, and eventually I did finish the book. And I went to check my mail. One should never do this before drifting off to sleep. It's it's really bad practice. But I quickly checked my mail, and it was an email from our handy-dandy Synology network-attached storage device. And the email said, your Synology lost power at, I think it was 10.45 or something around that time, p.m. I thought, oh, my goodness, what's happened here? And so the first thing I did was check with Siri whether we could still hear Mushroom FM. And we could not. Finally, it dawned on me, I should actually just check my battery status. And I checked my battery status and it said 95% not charging, even though it was plugged in. So I realized our power had been cutterated. By this stage, it was like 11.30, so it had been off for quite a while. And in New Zealand, we have multiple power companies, electricity companies that you can choose from. My understanding is that's not really the case in the U.S., is it? Not really. I mean, every kind of state has its own power yeah. company. Some have two, but usually it's it's just one for each state. There's not like a federal power company. Right. In New Zealand, it's all been deregulated, and so there are so many power companies, and they all compete for your business. You know, sign up for a 10-year contract with us, and we'll give you an iPad, mm-hmm. <laughs> all sorts of stuff. We've signed up with one that said if we – agreed to sign up with them for a year. They'll give us free electricity every weekend. So we've done that, and that's nice. Anyway, I called our particular power company and talked to their faults person, and they said, yes, they had been notified that there was an outage in our area, and it might be until 3 in the morning until it was fixed. They said, have you got anybody there who's medically dependent? And I said, no, we haven't, but we've got people all around the world who are dependent on Mushroom FM. And now Mushroom FM's not working, and 
She didn't seem terribly interested in no, what that's mushroom That's not a FM. medical crisis. Oh. It's just a crisis to listeners. So you talked over me just then. Sorry. But, but luckily I stopped. This is the first time we've had a big power cut since Henry, the wonder son-in-law, and I built the new mushroom pot, the great beast of a computer that powers Mushroom FM. And we set it up in the BIOS so that it's supposed to automatically start itself up when power is recovered. But I'd never seen it do it. And I wanted to make sure. So what I did was I went to sleep with one hearing aid in my ear, mindful that when you connect your phone to power, it always wakes up and voiceover speaks. So I knew that when the power came back on, voiceover would yell in my ear and I would be able to run down and check the Mushroom FM computer down in the studio and hopefully get back to sleep. So that all happened. 2.17 a.m. it came back and it yelled at me and woke me up and I went down and checked and it did indeed wake up. But why this is relevant is, so we've got two things that I don't know if they're related. The morning after that power cut was when the washing machine got weird. But the washing machine is saying it was downloading a, what did they call it? New control, device yeah, controller. Yeah, device controller. And I don't know whether it got upset because the power went off and maybe there was a surge. But I don't think so because everything else seems to be working okay. So... If you've got a Samsung smart washer called the what's Quick Drive. Quick Dry. Quick Drive. Sounds like going into hyperspace. And actually when you touch the panel it sounds like you're going into hyperspace. I mean it still works. It's just you can't use it from the app, which is annoying. So that makes me think it's not related to that power cut. But when you have two things happening in rapid succession like that, you can't have wondering. Yeah, so hopefully it will straighten itself out eventually because most things have cotton in them, but everything's going to wash on cotton from now to eternity. (sighs) Yeah, I'm a bit nervous about the Samsung support as well. Yeah. And what I've said to Heidi is, you know, when she gets a chance to come over, maybe we'll contact tech support then because I don't really want to bring the whole voiceover thing into the mix. I just... Don't want to deal with that. What I'm afraid they'll say is, well, it has Braille on the washer, which does, but that doesn't help us. <laughs> no, it's about the output, not the input. Yeah. Yes. So it's a shame because after being such a Luddite, such a Luddite about the idea of of us having a newfangled washing machine with an app, you were really digging it. Yeah, and, and it's a now, great washer. Now it doesn't work. Yeah, now it doesn't work. I mean, it works. It just doesn't work as well as it did. I mean, it still is doing what it's supposed to be. At least it was yesterday. So. Which sort of vindicates your laddidity in the first place. Is that a word? Yeah. Is laddidity a yeah. word? Yeah, I mean, that, that is true on some levels. I was thinking about this the other day, that if I were a teacher, I wonder if I – and I can just see the backlash from parents and kids if I were to do this, if I were a teacher, where I would have a day or some – like one day a month where the kids could not use any kind of technology – but they would have to use pencil and paper, or they would have to use calculators or whatever. Um, but they'd have to actually look in a book because there may come a time. I mean, think about it. It's a survival thing because when you don't have the technology, you, you're you pretty much dysfunctional. I mean, you, you, you can't do anything or you think you can't do anything. And I'm not sure that humans are being taught those survival skills. I mean, we remember when there was an internet and when we didn't have iPhones, but the generation now doesn't. And, you know, you sometimes, particularly with the pandemic, you know, and, and natural disasters, 
you sometimes got to get back to a little basic so you could at least function. It's amazing how vulnerable the internet is too because earlier this week there was this massive outage of one particular provider that powers a lot of the big websites like I think – was it Amazon affected and Amazon the BBC affected. and the Guardian and yeah. PayPal, a lot of really big players. And apparently it was supposedly caused by one provider's configuration going rogue and taking the whole thing out. The Internet's incredibly vulnerable. And one day we will have some sort of massive coordinated cyber attack that knocks a lot of things out. And it's just amazing and a bit scary how much is dependent on the Internet. Yeah. But in America... You've got these survivalists, haven't you? That that oh, st- yeah. s- they have, they're in these bunkers and yeah, they a lot of them are out west in Montana in places, and I, I have to laugh because I had this picture in my head because every time there's a presidential election, one of the groups goes underground. So I I had this picture like when Trump got elected, was he you know was he standing there with Obama and. Handing over the keys. Okay, now now your people can can go into the ground, and then you know four years later was he standing there with Biden going okay now here and and he hands or no Obama hands over the keys to Trump because the, the one that makes me laugh is when some new political figure is elected. You always now every four years you always get the surge of tweets from people to say That's I'm. Not my I'm no, well, they say that, but what I was thinking was they say, I'm moving to New Zealand. Yes. And it's really funny when you hear Republicans doing it. Yeah. Because, and I, I write back and I say, mate, do you realize that we've got an unmarried mother who's an atheist as our prime minister? You know, and all, all these, yeah, we've, got, we've got a nationalized healthcare system, all these things that you stand against, and yet you say just because your guy didn't win. Girl, you're uh, moving to New Zealand. <laughs> I think they want to because they think it's the furthest place away. More, mm. I, I like to calmly point out that they wouldn't let people in because we have such a strong immigration policy that it's <laughs> not that simple. You think it's really easy to get up and switch countries, but it's trust me, it's not. It is very complicated. Yeah, yes. unless you, I don't know, go somewhere that most people wouldn't go, they might take you in. I don't know. Just talking about the the doomsday preppers or the bunker people, there is a show or used to be a show on Discovery or History Channel, one of those that used to actually show programs and now has more reality-based stuff called the Doomsday Preppers. And they would show their little bunkers or silos or whatever they've moved into, and some of them are quite elaborate. So Now, Peggy Kern <laughs> – is commenting on the Twitter. She says, at one point when our water heater was updating, the control module, or whatever it is called, they ended up creating a brand new app. You might want to look in the app store and see if there is another app for your washer. That's interesting. Didn't we do that, though? Well, what I suggested we do on your phone as a test was delete the Samsung SmartThings app and uh-huh. reinstall it, and I believe we've done that. But it's interesting because I did read that a SmartThings app update is coming. I mentioned that to you a couple of Yeah, days. and that's what I thought had happened. Yeah. So no. I don't know. Thank you so much Thank for you. another absolutely stunning Bonnie Bulletin. Thank you. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. 
To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin!